Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Christopher Thorne. Christopher is an accomplished financial services executive who has 30 years of experience working across private wealth management, institutional equities, philanthropy, and social investment in Melbourne, New York, and Brisbane. Having developed an extensive network, particularly at the intersection of government, community, and business, Christopher has established a reputation as a thought leader in the development of social capital markets. He's also leading work with clients to improve how they manage investments and endowments for greater financial return and sustainability and improve measurement of outcomes and long-term value. Christopher, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Rachel. Great to join you. You've had a very illustrious career and continue to do so. Can you sort of summarise how you got to this point? Sure. Um, I think I'm one of those people that we often talk to our children about that is doing something in their career that didn't exist when I started out. So I actually started out wanting to be a truck driver and uh, really was looking for an outdoor uh, life. And uh, other people in my family, including my mother, were concerned about that and suggested that perhaps I uh, look at something along the commerce line and introduced me to a stockbroker. And uh, my first role was actually cleaning out the basement of a stockbroker's office. And um, the next year in my holidays, they asked me back to do it for a second year. So I either did a very good <laughs> job or <laughs> not good enough. Um, so that's where I started. Uh, and uh, then as I was finishing my commerce degree at Melbourne University, I worked uh, for a, a, a established firm, JB Weir, and really worked my way through the business working on the stock, stock exchange trading floor, which is now part of history. Uh, working through as a retail advisor, helping uh, individuals invest their funds. And at that time, for the f- really for the first days, had some experience around uh, investing for not-for-profits, although it was very, very unsophisticated and uh, there weren't a lot of charities at that stage that had investable funds. I then moved on to the institutional desk where I was giving institutional equities advice and again, one of the things that fell into my ballywick was looking after larger uh, charities that had financial resources. And although I was sitting on the institutional desk, we called these clients non-traditional institutional clients because they really were just larger private clients in terms of their level of sophistication and engagement in terms of what they were doing with their funds, the skills that were available in their investment committee. So we're talking um, mid late 1980s at this stage. Uh, I was then fortunate enough to be sent to New York, uh, and while I was in New York, I was um, doing research sales trading on the equities desk, selling Australian and New Zealand equities into New Zealand, uh, sorry, North American institutions. And while I was there, I was given a brief also to look at what was going on in the family office and the high net worth investor markets with a view to come back to, to JB Weir in Australia and help establish uh, that, that practice. So I got to visit some of the largest foundations, uh, family offices 
endowments in the US and I think for the first time in my life had my eyes open to what philanthropy could do and how <clears throat> families were engaged not only in terms of the issues that they're interested in funding whether it be you know social issues like homelessness or um, environmental conservation finance issues right through to the arts but also how the foundation was used to um, hold the family together, the, the notion that we often hear that cliche, you know, the, the glue that holds the family together in terms of engaging the wider family around what they're doing in the community. That led me to, to get involved and in looking at how those endowments were invested, what different sorts of investment approach um, approaches were taken in terms of generating the 5% that was distributed and then also the grant making. At the end of uh, three and a half years in New York, I uh, returned to Australia to Brisbane. Um, again, not sure whether that was a sign of confidence in me or whether uh, <laughs> uh, things probably hadn't turned out as some expected, but uh, was fortunate enough to run uh, the Queensland business of JB Weir at that stage, which was three offices with 55 direct employees. And again, um, the beauty of a role like that was I had uh, corporate engagement, institutional investment engagement, and also um, private client engagement and again was asked to get involved in the not-for-profit space and was involved with the establishment of the funding or raising the funding for Queensland University of Technology Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies and really again for me it was a new um, uh, eye-opening or awakening if you like in terms of what was going on in Australia in terms of the way uh, the not-for-profit sector engaged with funders uh, I then moved back to Melbourne after four and a half years, and at that point, the government would just was just looking at establishing the prescribed what were then called prescribed private funds through the um, Prime Minister's Business Community Partnership, and uh, it struck me that there was a a business opportunity to actually help clients think through how they establish their family foundation, how they invest the funds, and then how they work out how they're going to distribute the uh, the growth of or the endowment income. And uh, with a partner who had a research background, we established the JB Weir Philanthropic Services business. And really that was focused on how, uh, again, clients give their money away. Uh, do they write a check? Do they endow something? How do they do the work around assessing who they were giving the money to, all the way through to um, what well, that led us into, the charities that those clients were um, supporting what work did those charities need and, and further on um, I suppose the big point for me was philanthropy although I think it's the most precious capital in the capital stack is a very limited um, pool of capital and if we could actually bring commercial capital to enhance the work that philanthropy was doing um, and to attract that uh, commercial capital we needed to be able to measure outcomes we need to be able to make the case for that money to supplement either grant money or philanthropic money, uh, we could then actually move to really shift the dial on some of Australia's, or the world's largest, um, what some people call wicked issues, whether it be social or environmental. So the notion of using impact investment or social finance to complement philanthropy uh, really has been the thing that I've focused on over the last decade. I guess something that's striking me as, as interesting, you talk about setting up the JB Web uh, philanthropic fund. Um, what's it like in a stockbroking firm where uh, philanthropy may not be the usual bread and butter? How does how do people kind of get around the idea of doing something focused on philanthropy and social impact in a role that's traditionally focused on profit? Now look, it's a very good question and it's one that exercised our minds uh, for some time. 
partly because it really is an oxymoron um, when you're in a firm that actually gets paid for giving advice and, and uh, if you like, buying or selling a share and you, you clip the ticket with a commission, giving away money without a commission um, doesn't necessarily fit the model. Yeah. But I think what we were able to do is demonstrate um, not only to uh, clients but also uh, management that in fact what we were doing was adding significant value even if it wasn't measured in the immediate commission in that this was something that was very valuable to the clients and that if they uh, understood um, or if we could understand what they were trying to achieve with their grants which was the return that came back to them whether that be non-financial or in some cases indirectly financially or if they're making an impact investment financially um, we could demonstrate that those clients were more likely to give us other business uh, and retain um, or continue to be clients of the firm. And we used a number of measures where we uh, surveyed clients and we actually measured the business that was coming from the clients where we were doing that work. And uh, we were able to make a case that um, this was really adding value. And uh, I, I won't speak for that business now because that's another, uh, uh, it's another place where I'm no longer at, but it's a very significant part of that business's um, overall uh, revenue. And uh, I think it's very clear that clients have stayed and are continued to be attracted to that firm because of the work that they've done. Mm. So, I mean, and not to oversimplify your career up until this point, but I would summarise that as you've been making a business case for doing social good for a long time. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I was a partner of J.B. Weir and Goldman Sachs in Australia, and um, uh, both firms were very commercially oriented, and the fact that I was able to do this basically full-time for a decade, uh, each year I, w I sat down and made the case for the work that we've done both financial and non-financial and uh, demonstrated both business that was one and put some metrics around the non-financial um, reputational benefits that those businesses received off the back of that and the people running those businesses uh, rewarded that by allowing us to continue what we were wanting to do. So it very much had a, com a commercial flavour and if we couldn't get over that basic line of at least covering our costs and a return on the equity of, of doing what we were doing, we wouldn't have been allowed to continue. We had Giles Gunasekra on the show back in season one, who I believe you know, and um, Giles made a statement that I found very interesting ever since. And Giles said, we have an abundance of lazy capital in Australia. I hadn't heard the phrase lazy capital before, but I, I feel that it's something you can speak to with uh, endowment funds, um, whereby there is you know, very large amounts of capital that are sort of sitting there. And, and Giles said that our superannuation sector really exemplifies that, where there is a great deal of capital and superannuation, but it's not necessarily being invested in social good, um, you know, for a social return and a financial return when it could be. So how do you address that challenge of an abundance of lazy capital? And, and how do you change the narrative um, so that we can see capital as more... Uh, for want of a better word, active? So um, I think the challenge with that question is that it is a little bit values laden in the sense of what's lazy money or not. Um, I've always taken the view that as, as much as I think I can see a non-financial outcome, if you're going to attract commercial capital to a project or an issue, you need to be able to make a commercial case for that. Now that doesn't mean always delivering um, the same return as a similar commercial uh, alternative. However, most of the time it does. 
And so uh, the, the notion of lazy capital, I think, can be um, uh, probably repositioned as, and I think we are seeing this both with corporates and investors, the notion of putting capital to work for a broader purpose than just um, maximising return. And uh, maximising return or generating a an appropriate return might be just the benchmark for that asset class. Now that's lazy if you're not trying to do better than that. Mm. But I think what we're seeing is managements, investors, actively looking for investments that will generate the same return they would have got if they'd gone down a traditional path, but by also delivering measurable environmental or social outcomes on the top of the financial return. So I think that's working the capital for purpose. Uh, is it working at harder versus lazy capital? I'm not sure. I think that's probably a little bit definitional. Um, you know, I, I'm actually more concerned for not-for-profits themselves where they might have money sitting in a bank account because they're risk-averse rather than in a diversified portfolio um, where they're generating a higher return. They might be taking a bit more risk but generating a much higher return to actually uh, achieve their, their mission. Or if, if organisations are sitting on huge reserves when in fact they should be spending some of those reserves or taking risks with those reserves to materially impact the mission, whether it be environmental or or social, to me, that's actually being more active with capital. And if money's just sitting in the bank because it's being safe, mm -hmm. that's lazy capital. Why do you think not-for-profits are risk-averse? Like, is it purely by virtue of the fact that they don't have a lot of finances and so you want to be careful, very careful with what you have? Or is it because we traditionally don't view not-for-profits as being sort of uh, innovative in, in, the, in the finance space? They're tr more traditional in their approach to financial management. I think there's probably three key reasons. One is that uh, yeah, they, they don't have a lot of um, resources and the resources that they have uh, saved have ever been off a very small margin so it's taken a long time to build it up or someone's given it to them and so therefore they feel a sense of obligation not to risk something that's been... You know, they don't, no organisation wants to receive a grant or receive funding and then in a period later, whether it's 12 months or five years, go back to the donor and say, well, you gave us $100 and now we've got 70 because we uh, we put the market into, into capital markets and we've made some bad decisions. That's self-evident, but it's certainly uh, a constraint. I, I think the second issue is that um, the ability to grow the capital within a, a not-for-profit has for many years been restricted because the nature of the capital it's received tends to be debt capital and therefore it needs to be paid back. So taking some sort of entrepreneurial risk by using it for an equity type purpose um, has constrained returns. And I think, you know, it's one of the big constraints on a not-for-profit that they can't raise. Until recently, they haven't been able to raise equity, so they haven't been able to generate that growth. Um, and I think the other the other part of, about that is that um, uh, unlike other investors, you know, you, you and I, hopefully um, earn a return from our employment or you have a business, you receive a dividend so you can top it up. Up until recently, not-for-profits weren't focused on, say, fee-for-service or other income streams. And so they weren't able to just go, a corporate can go and have a, a rights issue, a fund manager can go do a fundraise, other people can employ, uh, generate income from other sources. Uh, charities have been very restricted. So, you know, there's another reason why they have been very protective of the capital that they have. And I think finally, um, 
and I think this has improved over the journey, but often the people running the not-for-profits and even those sitting on investment committees have not necessarily had the experience, particularly with larger amounts of money, to actually make those informed decisions. And that's not at all a judgment on the people in those positions, it's just that um, for very understandable reasons they may not have had ex exp uh, sorry, uh, access to the expertise that would enable them to maximise those, uh, mm. those outcomes. Yeah, that makes sense. I've spent the past few years working with, with various charities and an interesting trend I've noted is a, a shift in language from charities looking for donations to charities looking for investments. And perhaps that isn't a shift that happened recently and I've only just become cognizant of it, but I have heard more and more charities saying, we want investment. Um, is, that, is that purely a dialectic change or does this represent a broader trend in the sector that you're seeing? I think there's a couple of things in that, um, and again, it depends on the, la the language being used and who, who's using the language. Um, I, I think the notion of looking for investment is interesting in the sense that normally an investor will invest funds on the basis that they get a return on those funds um, that is relative to the risk they're taking. So if it's um, secured debt, that's going to be a lower return than unsecured debt, which is going to be a lower return than equity. Um, and as I said just a minute ago, you know, for not-for-profits to be able to issue equity um, that's been prohibited um, and unsecured debt is hard to come by unless you're getting it from a friend. So, um, so there's a whole piece there around, um, you know, what, what, what's the source of the capital and what returns being expected. I personally think about this conversation in the light of finance, and I prefer the term social finance. Um, whether you're BHP raising money for a big mine or you're, you know, one of my sons um, raising money to buy a lawnmower for a lawn mowing uh, <laughs> practice or you're a not-for-profit trying to raise money to deliver a service, um, all of those things are, you know, sort of predicated on, on what the purpose is um, and you go to the right source of capital for what you're trying to fund. So if you're an institute, if you're an inst someone like BHP, you don't go. You, you primarily go to institutions. If you're my son trying to raise money for his lawn mowing business, you probably come to dad. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's and so I think for not for profits thinking about where they get their money from, if they're going to build a hospital wing, if you're a hospital, well, you, traditionally they might have gone to philanthropists. Now actually, people get that it probably makes more sense to go to a bank um, because you've got a you know a securitizable asset with an income stream. And I think what we're seeing is a greater awareness of other sources of capital rather than traditional government grant or philanthropic grant for a, a not-for-profit when if, as I say, you've got an asset or an income stream, there could be commercial providers who are willing to support that. Mm. The other trend I think we're seeing, uh, which we certainly talk a lot about on this show, is the trend towards outcome measurement and an increasing number of charitable organisations saying that their, their greatest priority or one of their greatest priorities get, is getting outcome measurement in order. Um, in an, sort of an era of the Royal Commission and an absence of trust and you know, people questioning is anything transparent anymore, how do you view outcome measurement through that lens as a way of, of getting very clear about the impact that you're actually having? Is, is that a core argument for outcome measurement or are there other arguments that are stronger? Um, I think there are a number of arguments for outcome measurement. I think one of the core things, again, is if you're going to a, 
the most appropriate source of capital for your capital, whether you're a not-for-profit, a business or an entrepreneur. Um, there are a number of things the investor's looking for. They're looking for security in terms of getting their money back. They're looking for an income stream, whether it be a dividend or interest. Um, and they're wanting to make sure that if they give you money, if you're a in international aid agency and you said you're going to use this money to either create employment or to look after kids at risk, uh, an investor has an interest in knowing that you're going to do what you say you're doing. Now, in the um, in the commercial capital markets, and I'm not saying that they're, they're perfect by any stretch, uh, and there are issues of trust there as well, but one of the things you do is have a, an external auditor come in and actually assure that what you're saying or reporting is actually accurate. And so there's an element where outcomes measurement is being used to demonstrate to funders and other stakeholders that you are doing what you say you're doing. And if you are saying you're keeping kids at home or keeping kids at school, to, to be able to measure that and sell that, uh, sorry, present that story um, is important both for government funders, for philanthropic funders, and ultimately commercial funders if that's appropriate. So I think the first piece is, is, being, is being accountable. But the second piece, and this is the thing that I think I'm very interested in, is often we think that non-financial outcomes are just that, and are either a soft measure or something you can talk about. But I have seen over my career uh, more and more starkly how once you've understood what an outcome is and how it's being generated, the ability to align interests and potentially demonstrate uh, or, or create an opportunity for investment capital to come and supplement grant capital um, grows and grows quickly. And that obviously becomes very important because if the philanthropic pool of capital is small and you can demonstrate to the broader cap commercial capital markets that they can invest with confidence, then you've got the ability to bring much greater scale to uh, problems, solutions, outcomes that traditionally would have had to be fund funded from a much smaller from a much smaller pool of capital. And like I could give you an example. Um, uh, there's a, a fund in the market called the Australian Chamber Orchestra Instrument Fund. Uh, traditionally, people who are interested in supporting the purchase of these rare instruments for musicians to play would have been asked to make a philanthropic donation, who would have made a donation up to a, their giving level, whatever that might be. Uh, the instrument would have been bought, held by the not-for-profit and lent to the musician. Um, what became clear to some was that actually these instruments had a pretty interesting investment profile. They were going to be around for a long time and the value was going up and they were insurable which meant that there was a, an, an ability to manage the risk. And so the notion was well rather than actually giving a grant to a not-for-profit to buy the instrument, why don't we ask people to invest in a unit trust that actually owns the instrument and then the capital value of the instrument which previously would have sat in the not-for-profit and not been released could be made available to investors. So they put in a dollar, the units have raised, I think, to a rise, risen to $1.40 or $1.60 when you adjust it for uh, currency, because these things are valued in US dollars. And then at that higher level, the investor then has the option, they could make a donation of that capital, and that 40 or 60 cent percent capital gain becomes um, uh, an additional tax deduction for them, which has got real value, or they can sell their units to someone and get their capital back, which a philanthropist couldn't. So just simply by changing the structure and understanding the needs of the investors, actually much larger amounts were able to be invested because people were willing to invest more on the basis that it wasn't an um, irrevocable gift. 
uh, and they're able to benefit from that in a way that that benefit would have been lost within the, the not-for-profit. Oh, that's really interesting. I want to change tack a little bit now. So based on what you've said here, your, your role is dealing a lot with the organisations that create social impact and the groups that, that can fund that social impact, but not necessarily with the people that require an impact. Um, so not... You know, not with the communities that are beneficiaries of the programs you're talking about. And something I reflect on quite a lot with myself is that in past uh, roles that I've done, I've been far more at the front line of the social impact. And um, I think it's easy to feel quite disconnected from the, you know, the, the end game and the long-term impact of what you're doing. So how do you remain connected to the why? And, and how do you remain connected to the people that you're actually trying to help? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think I might have, uh, when I started out, you know, this was a career that I didn't necessarily identify and probably didn't exist. I think one of the things that's been a driver for me through my career is helping people. And the reason I've stayed in the commercial sector for so long is actually, I believe, by using the skills that I've got with the resources that sit where I'm sitting, I can help more people uh, for longer and at greater scale And if I was, say, at the coalface, as Mm -hmm. you just um, described it. And so the thing that drives me is how do I use the skills and the access of resources I've got, not only in terms of absolute dollars that I could bring to a particular issue or a raising or anything like that, but how do we actually change the debate and change the language? So as we were talking about earlier, a commercial investor, sorry, a, a capital market investor or a listed company is now starting to think what is the best way to validate their outcome, which is beyond just generating a dividend or a return for investor, but that they're actually doing good things, generating, mm-hmm. and purpose is the word that's being used more and more in the current setting. So the other part that drives me is that this is not just about the not-for-profit sector. Um, if you're going to, if you've got a purpose and you're trying to help the most at-risk people uh, in our community or, or the environment, actually it's not just the not-for-profit sector that's got the solution and it's not just the philanthropists that got the solution and it's certainly not just the government that's got the solution it's actually how you bring those together so when i think about the work that i do it's as much although i'm very engaged in the not-for-profit sector and the philanthropic sector i see my greatest contributions being how we change the language and the advocacy to help those different sectors actually have communications and link up and uh, work in a, um, an aligned fashion, um, which is much more powerful than trying to do it by individual mm-hmm. sectors. So uh, a lot of the, there's language around like inclusive business um, and, and other forms that are emerging where this is being uh, focused on, but really it's about how we use all the resources of our community and society to get solutions to problems. Why hamstring it by just looking at the not-for-profits or another, another mm-hmm. sector? So. Um, you know, I think it's it's more, and that's the huge opportunity because there is actually an awful lot out there if we can just change the alignment or change the way we think. Yeah, definitely, and and I share your uh, passion for the private sector being viewed as a driver of of social good, and um, I think that is a narrative that we still need to change in many ways. Something that really interests me is um, the language we hear around the sustainable development goals. Um, 
I, I like the sustainable development goals. It's probably a good way to preface this is that I, I, you know, I don't think we have anything better at this stage. Um, but it's sort of the not-for-profit sector that have really jumped on those goals and sort of set targets and started aligning their work with the SDGs. But at the end of the day, it is the private sector that, that has the resources to achieve those goals. And I'm hearing this more and more that the not-for-profit sector alone has nowhere near the resources that you that, that we need to actually achieve those goals. So with the private sector being the driver of progress on the SDGs, how do we get the private sector to realise that? And Or maybe they have already, but how can we help to, to kind of build momentum on those goals? So um, I'm a great believer in that simple maxim that you can... Um, uh, manage what you measure and if you understand what you're measuring you'll manage it better and if you're going to be held accountable to that you actually are assured on the resources that you've or the resources that you've you've managed so i think it does come back to uh, the frameworks in which capital markets work how do we build the assessment of this into the integrated reporting framework um, there are a number of approaches around this. Uh, uh, EY, who uh, um, obviously uh, I'm very focused in, in terms of the work here around the embankment project that's come out of our, uh, our European business, which is looking to build a framework with 20 different companies with $30 trillion worth of assets to think through how they uh, manage, measure and report on their non-financial outcomes in a way that can be systematically compared across sectors and companies and then trying to find ways to bring the regulator along to create the framework for that to become part of the system you know to, to me that becomes very important in terms of how capital is allocated uh, and obviously SDGs are an important tool um, uh, as part of that process but I do think it's something that has to be brought into the the daily mainstream activities of companies rather than being this uh, activity over in the corner called CSR or you know a corporate foundation or something like this we're really talking about the fundamental activities of uh, corporate entities or organizations as we know them mm. okay there's a question I like to finish our interviews with what does success look like for you in 10 years time and what does success look like for the sector that you work in in 10 years time so when we started the philanthropic services business 20 years ago, there weren't many other firms that had that offering. And so people didn't know where to go to get that help. Uh, now, if you look around the wealth management industry, most firms at least have it in name, if not in, in title, and clients know where they can go to get the help. So for me, it was actually about sharing that story and, and giving people access to information. So in 10 years' time, I'd like to think that you know commercial uh, organisations, whether they be investors or companies producing things and services, actually have understood where this sits in their core activity and are measured on it and held accountable to it. Um, in terms of what's required to do that, um, you know, I think that's partly around building out uh, intermediaries or the expertise, uh, the skill sets that are required to help that become a mainstream activity rather than... Um, what we're seeing in some cases and at the early stage of this sort of activity where it's a few passionate people over in the corner mm -hmm. jumping up and down. So it, to me, it's actually that this becomes core. And I think 
really, um, coming back to some of the earlier comments, sort of in conclusion, it's really around the fact that we're all in this together. And there's no one sector that has, even though one sector might have more resources than another, or another sector might have more knowledge about a difficult issue, if we can't work together and combine our resources and get a better result for our community, uh, we're not going to um, go close to providing the solutions that these challenges require. So it sounds like your personal success in 10 years is very aligned to the success of the sector. Yeah, I, I suppose I don't think about my personal success in that <laughs> sense, um, but I think it is around, um, I, I think if, if, if I were to leave a legacy where you, you created focus around where you go to get the help and it had become a mainstream activity and we've built out those intermediaries and that knowledge set that changes attitudes, uh, I don't think you could ask for anything more than that. No, I agree. On that point, just quickly, in 10 years' time, if standalone corporate social responsibility departments didn't exist anymore because corporate social responsibility was entrenched throughout the entire organisation, would that be a sign of success? Yeah, possibly. Um, but that doesn't mean there wouldn't be a role for something called something else that was specifically... You know, as I said earlier, I don't think capital markets are the solution to everything and there'll be certain things in terms of care for an individual or ability to impact your, you know, if you're a global company but uh, you've got a big office in a particular city and you're interacting with people in your immediate context, it may be that you need people to do that. So, you know, it's not that there's one encompassing solution or strategy that's going to, to change the world. I mean, I think there are big things that can be done, but I think we're always going to have to be able to respond at the local level in different ways. So it may be, you know, if we didn't have the ability to do that, no, I think that would be a loss, but I think it's probably going to be called something else. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for our listeners that want to understand this space better, understand your work better, uh, perhaps forge a career in this sector, is there a book they should read that stood out to you or is there, you know, that's a hard one, <laughs> but is there a particular resource <clears throat> that they could access that might help propel them forward? I'm on the board of Impact Investing Australia and they have a, you know, wonderful resource uh, page on the website. Um, I've also previously been a director of Philanthropy Australia and they have a lot of resources um, I'm also on the National Advisory Board for the Global Steering Group on Impact Investing and if you go to the GSG website there's a lot of data points. Obviously there are a growing number of providers and um, even academic institutions that are generating uh, information. Again, it's one of the things I would say is there's not one answer to this, there's not one solution. It's just a question of finding what's relevant for your organisation, your circumstances, you know, there's a whole lot happening in conservation that will be different to what's happening in uh, homelessness. So, but the, the principles, I'm sure you'll find information at those sites that I've just mentioned. Fantastic. We'll include links to those in the show notes. Thank you so much, Christopher. This has been great. Great. It's a pleasure. Thank you.